0: Um, it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Anthony King, who obviously has got his presentation slide up already, so um, I don't need to give you the title. Um, he's obviously a professor of sociology um, at the University of Exeter, but more importantly, I think, right now, is our visiting fellow of All Souls College. Um, he's written, I think, on a number of different things. Some of you um, know him from um, looking at, I think, a subject we probably called tribalism in the sporting world, uh, but also on social theory, of course. Um, and particularly with reference to the armed forces all the work we've been doing over the last few years uh, on that. And the most recent books of note, which we must point out to you, The Transformation of Europe's Armed Forces, which came out in Cambridge 2011, was most recently uh, The Combat Soldier, uh, which came out this year with Oxford University Press. He's got some other research in the pipeline, which he's been talking about. So he'll probably tell you about that. Um, And it's also worth pointing out that, um, unlike many sociology theorists who simply study the books and, and look at the, the material from a purely theoretical point of view. Um, Tony's taken the effort, made the effort, to get out on the ground, been to Afghanistan, uh, worked inside um, the, the headquarters as an advisor to try and uh, help military personnel understand the species they're sort of dealing with from a sociological perspective. Tony? Thanks, Thank Rick. you very much for doing this particular presentation, which I force you to do. Yeah, um, quite. Thank
1: you. Quite, thanks. Thanks very much. Well, thanks for being here on a beautiful day. I mean, to be honest, if I was I don't have a choice. I might be outside. But anyway, thanks for being here. Um, uh, well, uh, this paper is slightly curious. I mean, th- there's a, you know obvious provenance of this paper, namely the book that Rob just mentioned. Uh, what I've extracted out is, a, is a, a set of discussions in the book about contemporary uh, urban combat, and that's what I t- want to talk about um, today. Um, but, but I had no particular uh, desire, no particular plans to work uh, you know, to provide presentations and potentially work up an article as I am doing on, on the issue of, of urban combat and close quarter battle. Um, it, it came out of discussions with people. Um, I, I'm at All Souls and they do these visiting fellow colloquium, and I was asking my colleagues, my fellow visiting fellows at All Souls, what they'd like to listen to me talk about, and I gave a list of probably less interesting topics. And when I mentioned, oh, I've done a bit of work on urban combat, uh, various colleagues said, yeah, yeah, you must do that. And the talk went down as well as anything can go down well as a visitor at All Souls, it seemed to go down okay. So that then encouraged me uh, that, that then encouraged me to um, maybe think there's something to this. And so I take the liberty of presenting this to you, and I'll be interested to see what your reactions to it are, if there's any merit or uh, wider validity in it. One point on the title, I mean, the title is slightly hyperbolic and, um, y- you know, sensationalist. Really, uh, a better title for this talk is something like Towards Oppressionalized military, um, the case of uh, close quarter battle, the case of, 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 of urban uh, combat, and that's what I'm going to uh, talk to uh, today. Um, in the mid-1970s, um, sociologists, and indeed social scientists generally, but particularly sociologists, uh, began to note uh, and, and publish on what seemed to be, and I think they were correct in, in identifying it, seemed to be a historic transformation, namely... Western forces in particular, were moving from the citizen model that has typified uh, Western armies from, we might say, uh, the Levy en masse, 1793. Uh, they were moving away from these large-scale citizen-slash-conscript forces uh, to uh, professionalised military uh, units, all volunteer, much smaller but all volunteer uh, forces. Um, now, this rightly uh, uh, caused much Uh, interest at that particular time, Um, but more recently sociologists and social scientists more more generally have been much more interested in the kind of uh, more technical, um, spectacular aspects of uh, military uh, development, and in particular if you look at the 1990s uh, there's intense debate about the whole revolution in military affairs and the introduction of new digital uh, and and precision uh, technology into the military, and what I suggest is that uh, in a certain sense, in no way am I denying the importance of the revolution in military affairs, no way I'm denying the importance of new technology, digital technology in particular, but it seems to me that those sociologists in the 1970s were in a sense onto something, that professionalisation at one level just means a change in employment contract, brutally, um, that you become a career soldier, pay for your paid for your um, potentially career uh, service. And, and at that level, it doesn't seem particularly important or, or imp- uh, 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 portentous development. But what I try and suggest is that actually, underlying that banal transformation in mere contractual relationship between the employed soldier uh, and the state, effectively, or the Ministry of Defense, uh, lies very significant uh, cultural uh, and social transformations. And it's those of interest interested me, and it's those that I'd like to uh, talk about today. Well, if we're going to talk about professionalism, of course, these two books uh, are essential. What Samuel Hunter does, "Soldier State," and Yanovitz's um, "The Professional Soldier," and uh, I think they provide a, a useful definition of professionalism. Yanovitz um, is, is very clear. Professionalism consists of three essential things: a specialised form of knowledge, a responsibility uh, to the society of which you're part, and a sort of corporate ethos. Pretty reasonable definition. In terms of the specialist knowledge, the expertise, what he was thinking of and what he defined was, to use Laswell's phrase, the management of violence. And he particularly saw the emergence of a professional officer corps that was expert in the management uh, of violence. And particularly that phrase expertise, specialised knowledge, seems to me to one to one to, to, to hold on to in terms of professionalisation. And bizarrely, perhaps, not bizarrely, but ironically, it points to something slightly paradoxical about professionalism, that the best professionals, the true professions, are actually amateurish about the vocation to which they're dedicated. Amateurish in the traditional sense of the word. They are lovers, they have a passion about the vocation uh, which they've chosen, which gives them a kind of... um, a, a intense interest in every detailed aspect of performance, collective and individual performance, in that domain of expertise. And I think uh, in communicating that sense of passion, of amateurish passion, Yanovitz uh, and Shields despite, uh, sorry, Yanovitz uh, and Huntington, despite many differences that I have with them, I think they provide a useful point. However, of course famously, um, Huntington did not think Uh, that professionalism extended down into the domain that I'm interested in, namely into the kind of domain of tactical activity in which soldiers, NCO and very junior officers are uh, involved. Indeed, on the contrary, he was absolutely explicit in the opening of the book that enlisted men and therefore the activities of that immediate tactical level of the engagement of the enemy with fire on the battlefield was not a professional activity. It was a trade, not a uh, profession. Uh, now, what I suggest is that uh, perhaps talk. You know, he was writing in an era, despite the fact that he focused on professionalisation, the professionalism of the officer corps. Of course, publishing in 1957, Huntington was writing in an era of the citizen army, and indeed, the primary kind of energy behind his work is precisely trying to explain and in fact provide a normative basis of a pretty novel situation that the United States found itself in, namely in possession of a very large citizen standing army for more or less the first time in its history and so his, his concerns his, his, his definition of professionalism only exists <laughs> at the officer level, reflects the army um, to which he was writing. If we turn now To the last 10 years of conflict, to the intense operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think it would be extremely difficult for anyone to maintain that the activities which have taken place at the ground level of troops patrolling and fighting in the streets and deserts of Afghanistan, the mountains of Afghanistan, have not or could not be defined as professional. Indeed, what I suggest is a very useful comparison here is the performance of American citizen soldiers in Vietnam and their contemporary performance in the last 10 years. And that difference of performance, one ending up in defeat, mutiny, uh, and massive uh, disobedience, uh, the other ending up in um, highly problematic, but nevertheless not outrageous defeat and, and collapse as a, as a result. So what I suggest is that we can, and what I want to do today is to try and extend Huntington's definition of professionalism as a form of specialism down to the lowest tactical levels. And in effect, what I want to provide, and i put it here, uh, to, to I want to try and analyse the micro-practices of urban combat at the lowest tactical level, talking here of squads of 10, uh, 15 people, down to perhaps four people in a, in a stack, as I will describe later on, in order to contribute to contemporary understandings of military uh, professionalisation. There's another literature to which I hope, and perhaps think, this work potentially uh, contributes. Um, In the last 10 to 15 years, I think there's been an increasing interest uh, by sociologists in uh, forms of collective protest and indeed uh, collective uh, 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 violence, in fact, in, often unorganised collective violence, in terms of stimulated by mass protests around things like the G8, and also uh, uh, in terms of, although principally uh, peaceful, but in terms of the uh, Occupy uh, movement in response uh, to the credit function. Indeed, uh, Michael Biggs, who uh, sat here, is I see his work as contributing very significantly to this work on uh, the dynamics of collective violence in the contemporary era. Now, one of the key figures I would argue in this literature uh, is Randall Collins, a uh, professor at uh, Pennsylvania, and he's produced a number of important works on, on various forms of conflict. One of his most recent was a monograph dedicated uh, to violence. An essential point of that, and it's a micro-sociology of violence in all its uh, manifestations in social life, including military, but also including uh, aspects like domestic violence. What, do you, what his central argument is, is that human beings are uh, incompetent when it comes to violence. Um, that, Typically, in contradiction to literary or filmic representations of violence, actually, human, human violence is typically incompetent, uh, 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 badly executed, uh, unwillingly executed, and disordered. Uh, Essentially uh, violence is almost overwhelmingly, especially mass violence, is overwhelmingly characterised by mass or individual uh, incompetence. And certainly I I, I think his work on this is profound. I have no disagreements uh, in general with his his point. What I suggest is in terms of the military and thinking about uh, urban tactics, urban combat techniques, is the professionalised military of the 21st century is explicitly seeking to overcome the kind of natural, I use it in inverted commas, the natural crowd dynamics uh, which uh, Collins and various of his colleagues, including Michael, uh, potentially and uh, very usefully have uh, illustrated. The idea of professionalism at the military level is to eliminate natural and incompetent collective and individual uh, reactions and responses and replace them with refined and established uh, responses. Now, clearly, in many cases, professional militaries fail, that uh, chaos and disorder is, is, is what follows uh, uh, combat, and especially urban combat. But I would suggest that the attempt is there to overcome the natural individual and collective reactions of panic, fear, uh, and flight, or, or, or forward panic, Uh, by uh, more uh, tempered and refined and effective uh, responses. So therefore, in talking to uh, Close Quarter Battle, I'd like to try and fuse these two interests in a story about military professionalisation and also in the micro-dynamics of violence that many sociologists have found interesting in the uh, current era. So, defining uh, what I mean by Close uh, Quarter Battle. Urban warfare, since the beginnings of civilization, armies, humans have engaged in forms of urban warfare. They have fought in or for cities. Uh, and we only need to go back, you know, the, there's various sackings of cities uh, and destructions of populations in the Bible, uh, famously, uh, book two of the Aeneid, uh, has an absolutely you know, really motive and powerful description of the sacking of Troy, and especially the uh, destruction of the palace and the murder of Priam by Pyrrhus is a powerful uh, story about uh, urban, con- urban uh, combat in the uh, pre Christian era, although Virgil himself never served in the military, but presumably took some of the uh, descriptions from his own knowledge of of that of that uh, period um, Urban warfare has remained uh, a key category uh, of human conflict since that time. If you look at uh, Christopher Duffy's excellent work on uh, fortifications and siege warfare in medieval and early modern Europe, we find their continual uh, uh, use of or continual uh, uh, happenings of urban uh, combat, of fighting in and for uh, cities. And this is one of uh, Vauban's uh, famous forts, actually, in, in, in Lille. Um, now, of course, in the 20th century, especially in the Second World War, uh, there was a very extensive uh, urban fighting. And much of this urban fighting um, generated quite high levels uh, of skill among the combatants, and this is an image of Stalingrad, which was, in my view, the you know the both the culminating and the uh, most uh, the largest scale, most brutal of all urban uh, combats in the uh, Second World War. And Stalingrad provides, I think, a very interesting uh, example of the nature of urban warfare, urban warfare as distinct from close quarter battle. Uh, and I'll just, just give you an example uh, of this. That, that, in fact, the Wehrmacht, after much difficulty, did develop certain techniques for uh, fighting in the uh, urban area. and The Soviets uh, similarly developed similar techniques. Now, one of the examples here is the, the assault on the Barakady gun factory in late October and uh, November uh, 1942. And there were some very sophisticated assaults occurred around these factories. One in particular on this house, uh, the Commissar House, uh, on the 11th of November. And what the uh, Wehrmacht did was to generate special stormtrooper battalions, pioneer battalions uh, in these assaults on the factories and assign one to the assault of this fortified house back here. If you look at I'm not going to go into this but it was a a well planned and well executed though brutal and very bloody assault. Uh, But what I suggest here is, although here is clear evidence of the refinement of the planning and execution of urban tactics at the battalion level, there is little evidence of something that I'm going to call CQB, micro-expertise, micro-practices, at the level of the platoon and the squad and the section, i.e. at the level of teams of of four, eight, uh, ten, twenty soldiers. It became sophisticated, but... It's still it's, it, these these techniques I'm going to talk about hadn't really developed. Now, in the 1980s, uh, NATO began to take increasing interest in urban combat as a way of uh, responding to uh, Soviet threats and, and, and certain new Soviet doctrine on how they're going to take or avoid uh, fighting in uh, cities. But again, in the, and I'll come back to this infantryman's guide. Um, there's no development of what I would suggest and what military practitioners would call close quarters battle, namely refined skills in terms of entering and clearing particular structures and buildings. There general, uh, there's sophistication at the level of planning and execution but at the level of micro-tactics it still re- retains uh, an unrefined uh, method. Now, in the 1990s, in the experience of Mogadish Grozny, and Sarajevo, uh, Western countries again, renewed this interest in urban combat and renewed this interest in a very serious, uh, in a very serious, much more serious way than they had in the past with the emergence towards the end of that decade, and especially into the first decade of uh, of this century, uh, with the development of new training uh, manuals and uh, new uh, training facilities. But even then, up till the early 2000s, I would suggest to you the specific practices of CQB, of close quarter battle, were not present within the general conventional military. Where then did CQB come from? Well, What I'd suggest to you is that while the conventional forces from the 80s on and specifically accentuated from the 90s became increasingly concerned uh, with urban combat, uh, there was a, a, a development occurring at a lower more covert level, namely among special forces uh, in the 1970s. Uh, And one of the key, if not the key, catalyst for this increased interest in the micro-techniques of room clearance, of building clearance, uh, was the emergence of international terrorism uh, in the 1970s, and particularly uh, the Munich crisis. In response to the Munich crisis, uh, where Palestinian terrorists uh, killed uh, uh, 11 um, Israeli uh, uh, athletes at that, in, in some hideous event, and a hideously incompetently managed event uh, by German uh, federal, federal authorities at that time. Western governments develop, began to develop an interest in the question of fighting in enclosed urban uh, spaces. And they developed special forces units in order to develop and execute these counter terrorist. Uh, operations and there was a few organisations that were critical uh, to the developments here: uh, the SAS I- I- in uh, uh, Britain, uh, Special Air Service, Delta Force uh, in America. GSG 9, Grenzschutzgruppe 9 in Germany, uh, and the Gendarmerie, the Groupement de uh, Securité d'intervention in France, were key groupings in developing uh, these micro-practices of urban clear clearing techniques, namely uh, trying to overcome the problem of entering buildings and eliminating terrorists while not... Uh, or minimising uh, the risk posed to civilian uh, hostages. And it's from these events uh, that uh, the close-quarter battle techniques, uh, which I'm going to talk about today, developed and, 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 and were disseminated. But for approximately 30 years, from 1972, let's say, mid-70s, uh, right through to the early decades, the early years of last decade, the early years of the 2000s, effectively CQB techniques, these micro-practices of entering buildings and eliminating, uh, that is, you know, killing, you know, to be honest, killing uh, uh, terrorists or uh, subsequent insurgents, uh, became and remained the preserve of covert uh, special forces and was not disseminated out to conventional uh, infantry uh, soldiers. Well, this began to change, especially in Iraq and especially following uh, the assault on Fallujah in November uh, 2004, when the US Marines found uh, both that they had incurred more casualties than they needed to because of incompetent urban tactics, and in fact had caused many more civilian casualties than they needed to by the use of old, traditional, Stalingrad-esque, tactics in an environment in which there were still many civilians uh, in, the, in the buildings that they were seeking to clear. This was further affirmed in Afghanistan, where, although most of the fighting has taken place in these curious kind of rural and yet urban environments, uh, through and in compounds and villages, uh, this requirement to uh, execute uh, precision, post quarter battle techniques in which uh, potentially, uh, insur- armed insurgents had to be engaged and shot, but at the same time, civilians had to be uh, protected. This became e- even more uh, essential in, in Afghanistan. So, uh, what we see is uh, the development of CQB tactics, close-quarter battle tactics, in the, in the preserve of the Special Forces in the 1970s, disseminating out to the conventional forces in the last 10 uh, to 15 years. Now, quick word on method. CQB represents a very significant problem in terms of sociological method. Um, uh, it's very difficult to see to observe these techniques in practice. Um, if you look, some academics have embedded in forces in combat forces in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but CQB represents uh, a, a, an additional problem. Even those who've embedded, and, and if you look at journalists embedded, some of who have done very good work. I mean, uh, thinking of Bing West or or, or Seb Junger, in many cases, even though they were embedded in particular units, they did not witness the actions that they subsequently described. Uh, they were not present or in a different part of the uh, field of battle, so they don't see the action that they subsequently described. Combat is confusing, it's dispersed, it's difficult. And therefore, uh, even those academics who have uh, been embedded, and some of them have done excellent work, in many cases they've relied on the old technique of post-action uh, review. And Certainly I have never embedded, so I have relied on that. Uh, post-action review. We might say, oh, well, could we get around this problem of not being able to physically witness CQB? And let me just say, of course, with CQB, the action happens inside houses, so that it's very difficult. Only the sort of lead troops in each squad actually see what occurs in each room. So it's very difficult that CQB accentuates and multiplies the problem of particip- participant observation in terms of sociological research. So then the question is right, can we use video footage? Randall Collins, I think, has very intriguingly suggested that the emergence of video footage of helmet cameras, of, of GoPro cameras, has been has maybe a huge benefit uh, to micro sociologists. Certainly um, the micro-sociologists of Crowd Violence have used it very impressively, uh, video footage. The problem is h- here is that, and I've done a, survey, a brief survey of, of YouTube and various other sites, the footage that's actually on the web is again not that that Significant. It's not of troops entering rooms. It's of firefights at a distance. Uh, the context in which these fights ha- occur is never specified. So they're very dangerous uh, to use them in terms of empirically because we're not very sure. Of the sort. So they, they present problems. So how did I get around this problem? Well, essentially, I focused on training. I got to uh, I focused on training in order to try and understand the techniques of close um, quarter battle the micro-tactics uh, of urban clearest, clearing in order to get a sense and understanding of these methods and, t- and techniques. And these are some of the sites that I did work at. I basically spent a week at most of these sites. This is uh, the US Marine uh, massive uh, 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 range t- uh, 220 at 29 Palms uh, out in California. This is there, down at Pendleton, their emer- Infantry Immersion Centre. Uh, this is the Canadian Urban Training uh, Centre. This is one of the British uh, urban training centres in uh, Norfolk, again in Norfolk, uh, spent significant amounts of millions um, constructing compounds that we won't be fighting in uh, after 2014, but that's a different a different question. Um, Hamelburg in, in in Germany, uh, this is a, a beautiful old 18th century village uh, where the German troops still train, uh, called Bonland, uh, and then the the premier French training site um, uh, in Picardy. Uh, called Sans And this training area, actually, I'm pretty confident, is the training area that Ernst Jünger trained on before Operation Michael in March uh, 1918. It's always been a training area, and the German lines were just in front of this uh, training area. But this is Sans which is a very elaborate uh, training area. Now, the key... So I, I spent significant amounts of time in all those institutions. This was the, this sort of unprepossessing shed uh, was where I did the principal research. Uh, this is the Royal Marine uh, Commander Training Centre down at Limston uh, in Devon. This is their urban, this the compound as they call it, where they do urban training. It has huge advantages uh, in that uh, you could, there's a gantry. Uh, it, uh, I've got photos there of on There's a gantry over which you can stand, stand on which you can stand, overlooking uh, the training. And indeed, uh, the directing staff stand on the gantry and direct and criticise uh, the squads as they go through, run through their exercises. So it presents. Um, not an optimal, but certainly it seems to me to be a highly instructive way of seeing contemporary uh, urban uh, combat, and certainly the doctrine of urban combat. Now, this still is not the front line, although the techniques are used on the front line. Um, So in order to bridge that gap, what I've tried to do in the research is to uh, use a series of interviews with... Uh, directing staff and with candidates who've all served in Iraq and Afghanistan and in many cases have been involved in, uh, in actual urban uh, fights to, to fuse the discussion and the description and the analysis of training with actual uh, operational realities and that's also been supported by some memoirs which actually are quite uh, useful. So that's the data that I'm going to talk to uh, today. What is, what is the problem with urban combat? Well, let me skip through this. Combat in the rural area is, although terrifying and difficult, is essentially simple. It involves effectively uh, small groups, and, and I'm going to absolutely talk no higher group than the section or the squad. I have about ten soldiers. Um, in, in the case of a section or squad in, in, in rural operations, essentially they're tasked to clear a trench or two trenches. They've got two objectives uh, and they manoeuvre with fire, so they move and fire uh, in order to cover each other to clear those, those trenches. Throughout those processes, they are able to maintain their uh, uh, attack formation, their combat formation. In other words, in the rural environment, uh, infantry tactics, although in execution is liable to break down and collapse, is essentially simple. It's one or two threats uh, executed in established combat attack formation. And therefore, the fundamentals of it are simple. In the urban environment, all of those simplicities uh, are eliminated. Two critical things occur in the o- urban environment. And this is another image of Sans and this is a, a disastrous attack, uh, a, a trainee attack executed by a French uh, company that went horribly wrong, indicating exactly what I'm about to say. What occurs, once troops get into buildings, <laughs> two things happen. First of all, destruction structure of the building breaks up all assault formations and introduces a turbulence of the roles that people adopt. Because as you move down a corridor, uh, you might move down an original combat formation, uh, but people have to go off into side rooms to clear side rooms, and so by the, by al- almost immediately on entering in a building, the actual order of who's who's where in a stack in an order of a squad as they enter has changed around, and the 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 um, the initial uh, combat formation, the initial assault formation, has been utterly reformed and will be continually reformed throughout the building. The second point is this: the number of threats is multiplied by a very significant. A uh, 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 number, uh, instead of simply one enemy trench or two enemy trenches, uh, there are multiple threats. As one moves down, as troops move down a corridor in an urban environment. There are multiple th- threats in front of them: doors left and right, stairwells, holes in the ground, potentially IEDs, civilians, uh, insurgents, suicide bombers. Uh, the the mul- there's a multiplication of the threats, and therefore. Um, Urban combat, and this is where uh, close quarter battle has been developed, urban combat requires a very specific, and not totally novel, but a, 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 a skill that's so accentuated and magnified in the urban environment that it might as well be a novel skill. Soldiers in the urban environment, on entering buildings, on seeking to clear buildings, need to identify the risks that they face, and they need to identify the risks or threats that they face on each room that they enter. They need to prioritise uh, those threats, which ones are the most dangerous, in other words, which threat is likely to kill them or their fellow soldiers most quickly, and they need to assign team members to the neutralisation of each of those threats. Sometimes threats are things like um, furniture that might conceal weaponry, Quite benign threats but sometimes of course obviously rooms will contain insurgents sometimes barricaded into into the rooms or in Fallujah not only barricaded into the rooms but also high on various forms of drugs which made made the, uh, the uh, made actually uh, 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 stopping them from fighting uh, very very difficult they would fight with very fight on with very serious wounds so uh, you get, get three problems identification of threats prioritization of threats and identification, assignment of the neutralisation threat to team members, and military, uh, military, Western military today have a, have a, have words for understanding this problem in their uh, descriptions. They call they call it the requirement to break things down. Break things down is the sort of ethnographic word they use to mean the the identification of multiple multiple risks, prioritisation, and assignment. Now, how does this? This, this, this neutralisation of multiple threats work in practice. Well, what effectively used to happen uh, in urban combat uh, at the squad level, this is right through from Stalingrad, right up into the, into the Iraq assault in 2003 and into Fallujah in 2004, is effectively at the lowest level, infanteers would enter a building, they would throw a grenade into any room that they thought there was someone in, and they would charge into that room firing uh, machine gun But machine gun fire or automatic uh, rifle fire into that room, room, as this as this is evidence of. Now, this this is pretty plausible, especially for not very well trained soldiers. Pretty plausible technique, and certainly it's a technique that one can think has certain beneficial moral effects of throwing grenades and firing off weapons at large numbers. There are problems. Obviously, there's a problem of collateral damage, which uh, uh, and killing of civilians, of innocent civilians, which has actually happened uh, when these techniques are used. But more surprisingly, is that the spraying of machine gun fire is not a very effective way of clearing a room. And I give you the example of David Belavia, who actually got a Silver Star uh, in on an action uh, house clearance in Fallujah in November uh, 2004. But before we, the first time he we went into that house, um, he got into the first room. He, ha- he was armed with a um, uh, well, mini machine gun, which is a belt-fed, handheld. Uh, machine gun, a kind of light machine gun, and the belt has 500 rounds on it, and his belt was full. He went into this room in which there was an insurgent, the insurgent was barricaded uh, behind uh, a sandbag, and he pressed the trigger on this machine gun, and the military, the military people here will confirm, pressing the trigger on a machine gun and letting it fire right through the whole belt is called going cyclical. He went cyclical, he fought, fired 500 rounds into this room, he didn't hit anybody. He subsequently killed all the insurgents in this building when they went upstairs He killed nobody. So the, the use of the spray technique is, is not only extremely dangerous and undesirable in a mixed environment where there are civilians and insurgents, but actually it's highly uh, ineffective. And one of the key elements of CQB as it was developed in the 1970s, as it's uh, disseminated out to uh, regular forces uh, from 2004 in particular, Has been the emphasis on precision shooting within the urban environment, within buildings as you enter and clear them. And uh, enormous amounts of time is spent, and this is one of the, this is Royal Marines training down on Devon, actually, on a day pretty much like today, uh, two years ago. Um, uh, And and they spent enormous amounts of time uh, uh, engaged in precision shooting at extremely close range. Uh, they're on the 15-metre mark here. They never fire from more than 25 metres away. They practice firing uh, accurately from uh, 25 metres down with r- rifles and, and here with pistols, transitioning uh, to pistols. Here's Canadians doing exactly uh, the same thing. Now, one of the curious things about, about contemporary CQB shooting um, is that you know, we might think, oh, well, shooting's a manual, you know, we pull triggers with our fingers and we hold weapons with our hands. And therefore, it's all about what you do with your arms and hands and eyes, and they're not irrelevant in any way. But in fact, one of the key things that uh, occurs in CQB courses is training foot placement. And foot placement becomes absolutely critical in the ability to fire precisely, Uh, both because a stable foot placement provides um, uh, a stable basis for accurate fire, but also uh, the techniques that are used are, 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 in terms of foot placement, do two things. One, and this is a pivot that I'll just show you that again. This is a means of pivoting. There's two uh, two things that are required in the urban environment. Combat formations become very um, uh, very concertina because of they're working in small rooms and corridors, and therefore uh, foot placement is critical in terms of making sure people don't shoot each other. And these methods of pivoting are designed to stop people pull it, putting their barrel against someone else's back and shooting in the back. They, 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 they keep the barrel out of the way. But there's a more critical uh, importance to the foot placement and the emphasis that is placed on uh, foot placement uh, throughout the uh, throughout curve urban combat. And let me just show you if this works. If it may not work. It, it's highly likely not to work. But this is just just watch this is a video of the same Marines training down at start point range. i just run through once more. Now, the the, the interesting thing, although it doesn't look that interesting, the interesting thing there is what the soldiers do. You'll note that after they fire the weapon, they do this really odd thing. They go like this. And actually, when I was watching the train, I couldn't understand what was going on. I couldn't understand what on earth they were doing, why they would do this weird ju- you know, bob every time after they fired. Well, this became apparent once they moved from the live firing on the range to tactical, collective movements in the compound, and I'll come on to this in a second. One of the key things in the urban environment, and which is central to CQB, and is central to precision fire, is the use of angles and arcs. Effectively, all buildings consist simply of a series of angles. They consist of a series of corners, doorposts and corners. And these, and, and in clearing a the building, the, it, is the, it is effectively the force, the troops which use the angles the most effectively, that will be most uh, successful. And, and, and let's just think about what corners and, and doorposts and angles do in buildings. They offer you cover so that they can protect you from the fire of, of your enemy but of course they're also extremely dangerous because as you move round a corner you expose yourself to fire and you can't see, so the moment of moving round a corner is the most dangerous element in urban combat and what the training in foot placement, and the sensitisation to foot placement which goes on in these urban training courses both in America and Canada, uh, in France and in Britain, uh, what they seek to do is to sensitise the soldier to the importance of lining themselves up with Corners in order to maximise the chances, or maximise their ability to see around the corner but under cover. And the rocking movement is a rocking movement that imitates that I, you know, the soldiers line are taught to line their foot up with a corner that they're trying to look round, and then they pop round with their weapon showing. In other words, they try to maximise the cover, but also maximise the arc at which they can engage targets. And so the, the entire, um, you know, you could not say, and indeed I've heard Director staff say this, the entire principle of internal room clearance is all about arcs and angles. A, a sergeant in law actually says that, It's all about arcs and angles. If you look at the bad assault in which Osama Am- bin Laden was assassinated, note where all the firing took place. All the, all the six individuals who were killed. In that assault, were killed on our angles. That the special forces troops hid behind angles and fired at the targets from angles. And Osama bin Laden was killed as he crossed his room. He sort of looked out his bedroom, and the special forces soldiers stood on the sort of stairwell in cover, and he shot him from that from that point. If you look at the uh, look look at that whole assault, was all shot from the shots were all made uh, from these from these using arcs. Uh, and angles, and we can see regular troops doing the, doing the same thing yeah, look, just, here. just very. Quick, I'll say just very quickly about training, and I'm going to go on to collective drills so that we that we stop at, at one. CQB requires precision firing. It is an acquired skill, therefore the form of training has changed. In the past, and uh, I'm sure those of you who've had some military training will re- remember this. Bad shooting, inaccurate shooting was seen as a moral failing to be uh, improved by physical exercise. Uh, Normally push-ups or running up hills or through mud or some unpleasant form of activity. What you find in contemporary uh, uh, close quarter battle training is a professionalisation of the pedagogy of shooting and there's an emphasis on uh, the acquisition of a skill and therefore uh, careful and progressive training. Now, I'm not going to talk more about that. One of the interesting dimensions of this training is that it has begun not only to uh, emphasize uh, the physical dimension of military performance and the attempt to inculcate uh, muscle memories into the bodies uh, of uh, the contemporary soldier, but actually there is a systematic attempt to colonize the mind, the psyche, uh, the emotional states Uh, of contemporary urban uh, uh, soldiers. And all the um, uh, uh, CGB courses which are currently run um, within uh, uh, North America uh, and Western Europe have a dimension of psychological training and psychological uh, preparation. Uh, And one of the the interesting ones here, I mean they're all interesting, but the Canadian Army has developed this technique of resilience uh, where they teach all their soldiers these mental techniques uh, for uh, um, calming themselves, for steadying themselves in combat, actually every case divide, derived deliberately and explicitly uh, from uh, sports science, and so they are various things of you know mental visualization and, and uh, arousal reductions, breathing, so, you know deep breathing, to deep breathe deeply to stop yourself uh, being being scared and and, and shaking. Um, but within this program that the Canadians um, uh, uh, give, and they give this video to every single soldier, they, they provide a sort of collective video, and they have a quite detailed discussion of the human, the development, the evolutionary development of the human mind. And they're effectively, what they're trying to argue is that, uh, and I a psychologist will probably say this is absolute nonsense. It's not my nonsense; it's the Canadian army nonsense. If it is, <laughs> um, uh, is that you know the human mind, the, 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 the most fundamental part is a sort of the amygdala, which is the sort of almond thing right in the centre of our brain where our flight and fight you know, uh, responses, our most fundamental uh, biological responses are apparently uh, 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 contained in this uh, amygdala and that's where uh, those fundamental uh, responses occur. Uh, and effectively what they're taught to try and do is to control those basic instincts, to have a, for a better word, uh, lodged in the amygdala by uh, the use of frontal, frontal lobes uh, and the cortex, and they use visualisation and breathing in order to do this. Now look, this psychology might all be nonsense, and it may indeed, and it seems to have some individual effect, but let us note the collective effect. The collective effect is that the internal workings of a soldier's mind, their emotional state, their attitudinal state, becomes the possession of the squad and the platoon of which they are part that actually this psychological training publicises the most personal and emotional elements of a soldier and makes it accountable to his colleagues in the urban environment with an explicit purpose of enforcing and encouraging uh, good soldierly performance in this highly complicated and difficult uh, urban environment. Indeed, just a footnote here. Uh, One of the the worries about the Canadians is that the resilience development was partly a way of overcoming the problem of post-traumatic stress disorder and the risks thereof, Um, and various Canadian soldiers said, ah, the problem is with this training, once someone's had it, if they then collapse, they are morally responsible for themselves. They have not properly internalised these psychological techniques. And that seems to me very interesting evidence that." Although perhaps in an unacknowledged way, the armed forces are are actually aware of what this psychological processing is is trying to do. It is publicising, it is making accountable even your internal state as a close-quarter battle operative. Final section of the the talk, and then empirical section of the talk, and then I'll come to a conclusion. Um, We talked about individual techniques of shooting, foot position, but of course... Soldiers don't work alone. In the urban environment, they work in what is called stacks. This is a stack. It's not a technical term. It's just a row of people who are going to enter a building and enter a room together as a team. Stacks normally consist of, of between three and eight uh, people. Ideal number, normally about four. And, that, uh, uh, and the stack operates as a, as, a, as a team. And indeed, the ideal... In close quarter battle is that the stack will operate as effectively, to use slightly military lin- uh, language, a- as a single weapon system. That there aren't four people and four rifles, there is a kind of hedgehog which operates completely in a coordinated uh, manner. So the question is, how do you uh, get a team of four, a stack, to work together in the um- urban environment in order to identify prioritise and neutralise the multiple threats they face. Well, the key method is drills. Why drills? Because in combat environment, and especially in an urban combat environment, teams do not have time to discuss and coordinate their actions, deliberate upon their actions as they encounter, uh, as they go into buildings and potentially encounter enemies their responses, their collective responses, must already be effectively uh, internalised. There must be a a set of algorithms that effectively, that they respond to as a team, on command uh, of particular individuals within the team. And the stacks are taught a series of drills which are intended to maximize their chance of success and minimize their casualties within the urban environment this is an image of this you could this is actually on the gantry in the compound looking down on a stack as it goes into practice a room uh, clearance and one of the key techniques um, of, of room clearance of course is getting into the room you know in order to clear a room you've probably uh, got to get into it and indeed. Uh, normally, you've got to get in through it through the door. I mean, the, the, in, in the past, people said, "Oh, we'll blow a hole in the wall." But what the American Marines, U.S. Marines, noticed in Fallujah is that you're clearing thousands of buildings. They haven't got that many charges to blow holes. So at a certain point, troops just had to go through the door. There was no other way into rooms. The ideal of blowing holes and surprising enemy did not exist. You had to go through the room through the door into the room. So the question was then, the question is, how do you uh, minimise the risk yourself? And the, the, the established technique, and you will see this right across Western Forces, is the so-called five-step entry, that the team will stack up and they will clear in five stages areas into the into the room until they are stood in what is called the dominant position, all four of them aligned on the back wall. Pointing their weapons and covering the entire area and potentially shooting and engaging targets if they need to. And this is what a five step entry uh, looks like. So the first two individuals go in, and slightly counterintuitively, they don't go straight into the room. They actually go sideways and clear the corners first because, of course, if you walk into the room, the chances are most likely for an assertion to is in the corner. He shoots you from behind or she shoots you from behind. So the first two people in actually split and go sideways. Third person comes in from the middle, fourth person comes in, and they form what 's called a, on the, the sort of baseline on the, um, in the dominant position, all covering the entire uh, room and there are and I have examples of troops actually doing this in an in, in, in operating environment in, uh, in Afghanistan and The key point here is to stay away from the door. Uh, the door is called a fatal funnel. Uh, why is it dangerous? Uh, two reasons. One, anyone defending a room, if someone was going to burst in this room and we were armed and feeling fairly uh, aggressive, we would, of course, point the weapon at that door and wait till they came in and just fire. So the door is always the most dangerous point. And the other thing is, as you walk through a door, you're silhouetted, always you're silhouetted uh, by the light behind. So it's a very dangerous area. So the troops are taught to clear away from the door and stand away from this uh, fatal funnel. We can talk about this in questions the drills get more complicated as the rooms get more complicated. And what's interesting watching people training is that the five-step entry is really... I mean, we could, we could do five-step entry, we could do it for ten minutes and we'd all be able to do it really easily, you know, if we wanted to. Not that we wanted, but we could do it really... But as the rooms get more complicated, with different rooms and alcoves, uh, doors open, cupboards, various things, the drills get more complicated and they get more numerous. And essentially, what an effective CQB infantry squad does is to develop a kind of algorithm, a set of algorithms, an encyclopedia of drills which are called upon in the light of the immediate situation uh, which they confront. And they'll have drills for left-hand corners, right-hand corners, T-shaped corners, L-shaped rooms, uh, square rooms, oblong rooms, rooms with multiple threats in. Uh, and indeed, one of the drills for this is this back-to-back drill. So that what a, a well-trained uh, CUB team uh, develops, as I say, is this sort of encyclical repertoire of dwell- drills queued on command. Very final point. Um, and then I'll go on to the conclusion. Um, One of the problems, even if, and notwithstanding the inculcation of a set of collective drills for all manner of possible threat, all manner of possible building, uh, shape of room, of size of room, etc., there's still significant difficulties in CQB. First of all, even if it's a standard drill that has to be executed, someone has to call it, someone has to command, right, five step entry, go, in, in we go. And you get examples of, of commands such as, such as that. So someone has to call that command. Um, secondly, sometimes drills have to be adapted because the environment is totally unique. There's a strange, you know, a, 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 a form of room or a form of threat that has not been uh, encountered before. But even if it's a quite simple drill, uh, someone's got to call it. And here's the problem that goes back to roll turbulence. In traditional infantry tactics, if you've got a a section, the corporal or the fire team leader calls the manoeuvre. But of course, in the urban environment, nobody knows who's going to be in the command position and stack. The command position in a British and and US stack is the two man. He commands, and it is a he in those examples, he commands uh, the drill. And it could be anyone. So what you, you find with CQB teams is not just adequate for people to have various bits of you know, you know, little archipelagos of specialism. Everybody needs to be in possession of the encyclopedia and to be able to enact every single form of action in every at every point uh, in the stack. And what I suggest is the uh, emergence of this IBT initiative uh, based tactics. What what it what it pressurizes, what it sort of engenders, is a intensification of this specialised, sort of dissemination, intensification of the specialised knowledge across the entire assault team. Everybody in the assault team uh, needs to be up to a very significant level of skill. One more point here. This goes back to the movement point. Why do CQB operators all try and fulfil the same movement template? Because the movement of the body cues reactions from the rest of the squad and if individuals begin to develop their own individual brilliant samurai techniques people won't know what to do in following them so it's very important that everybody works on the, you know works their body on the same template and takes the same the same very odd body shape that you see uh, with cqb trained uh, soldiers so that as they go into a room the second, third, and fourth man can just read what they need to do from the body shape that the individual uh, uh, adopts. Final point. This is my absolute conclusion. Um, Look, the development of CQB tactics, its dissemination out to regular troops in NATO, in Western countries, um, seems to represent uh, a professionalisation of the armed forces in the manner that Huntington would describe it, notwithstanding the fact that he didn't think professionalisation um, uh, was relevant for tactical level operatives. And indeed, soldiers themselves think that there has been an improvement of technique. The Marines I've spoken to compare the performance of Marine commandos on the Al-Four Peninsula when they raided Iraq in 2003, in which there were numerous. Uh, self-inflicted cock-ups and indeed very serious injuries inflicted by uh, false urban tactics at that particular point with the contemporary uh, raw marine trained in urban combat. Does this mean we're talking about mere professionalised amelioration of progress? Mm. Final point. It is very useful to remember Max Weber's point about professionalisation. It is not just about skill. It is not just about uh, the development of new forms of expertise. It is about monopolisation. Professions are critical status groups that, to paraphrase Weber, uh, monopolise ideal and material opportunities. And indeed, the skills they profess to have are a key way of monopolising those opportunities. Now, what I suggest is with CQB, certainly it seems to be a development of skill at some level, but is, is it an optimal development? Well, it's hugely costly in terms of the investment of training uh, resources, and we have no idea uh, whether that, uh, that investment is sensible uh, in, to, in and of itself. We have no idea whether it's optimal in terms of the output that you get. It is predicated on the belief that the militaries will be fighting in urban areas uh, in the future. Despite the increase in urbanisation in the human population in living in urban areas, there is no in any way, no definite, you know, definite deduction to be drawn that the next campaign will be in an urban environment. The Canadians are worried about fighting up in the Arctic, uh, there's not that many cities up there. So, uh, we, the development and the investment in CQB minimally, you'd have to say it's underdetermined. And then we come to the question, well if it's underdetermined by the strategic and operational environment, why have Western forces been so attracted to it? Why has it got such an allure? And here I suggest this, that CQB tactics have an allure because they've been the preserved special forces. They are high-status tactics. And therefore, uh, Western conventional forces have been, when they can, very keen to embrace these kind of tactics, not, ironically, primarily to defend themselves against strategic threats to the future, but to defend themselves against financial and budgetary cuts now. Thanks very much. (laughs)